so today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 6. Um, the reason I'm looking at this is really for uh, two reasons. Uh, one is last Friday I gave uh, a brief devotion on Romans chapter 5, which is maybe the most sort of uh, dynamic gospel uh, explosion in the entire New Testament where Paul just basically declares full-throatedly that our salvation entirely has to be by grace through faith on account of Christ's work alone. And, uh, and it's so explosive that that leads then into a discussion that we're going to talk about today in Romans 6, which is the question that really so often comes when the gospel is explained in all of its glory. And that is, so are you saying then, since it's all grace, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's really the big idea that Paul is going to deal with because this objection surely had been brought up to him as he proclaimed the gospel for all of the grace that it had. Uh, the second reason I'm going over it is because it just happens to be uh, part of, it happens to be the epistle text for this weekend's upcoming service on Sunday. And we've been looking at uh, the various texts from the lectionary, whether it be the epistle, the Old Testament, or uh, the psalm reading. And so it fit well, considering I just went over Romans 5 last week to go over Romans 6. So all that said, no more yapping, let's get to it. Paul begins Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Another way of saying it is heaven forbid, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Were we buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just <clears throat> as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life? And I should say it wasn't were we. It wasn't a question. It was we were. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So Paul's first answer to the question about whether we should just, you know, go on and live in sin, you know, that old saw, you know, God likes forgiving, I like sinning, it's a great relationship, blah, 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 you know, um, it's just not going to work. And here's why. The first part of Paul's argument for why we should not pursue sin, why we shouldn't look to sin, is because that's no longer our identity. When we were baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Paul says very clearly here, something happened in that baptism. We died to sin. Just as Christ was crucified on the cross, in our baptism, we have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. We have a new identity. We have been risen to new life. And notice, it happens in the waters of baptism. This isn't symbolic language Paul is using here. Paul is saying emphatically, something very important happened to you in the waters of baptism. God killed you and he made you alive. You are now a new creation. So if you're a new creation, risen in Christ, then Simply pursuing sin because, well, you're a free person now is really a terrible, terrible use of freedom. It doesn't match up with who you are, who God has declared you to be in baptism. Now, I want to be very careful here because as Romans 7 will go on to show, 
when we talk like this and when Paul talks like this, he is not denying the reality of ongoing sin in the believer's life. In fact, Romans 7 will be very clear that really sin is an ongoing struggle for us the rest of our lives. That from now on as Christians, we are these two men or two people. We have this old nature that is always tempted to sin and wants to give in to sin. And we have this new nature that desires the things of the spirit and they are in constant conflict as Galatians chapter five points out to us as, long, as well as Romans chapter seven. Paul goes on verse five, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Notice the future tense language there. On the one hand, we have been united with him and we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. So here's the another part of Paul's argument. We're, we are living in what theologians often refer to as the already and the not yet of the Christian life. Already, we have been declared to be dead in trespasses and sins and crucify with Christ. Our old nature is gone, dead, no longer has mastery over us. And yet there's this, because of our ongoing sin and this ongoing struggle, even though we have been declared positionally that way by God from the seat of heaven, in this life, we are still awaiting the reality of the resurrection that will be ours. We've entered into it already in our baptism, but we still have not gotten to it fully. We have not apprehended it fully as we will when we finally arrive uh, in the courts of heaven. He goes on, verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, in bondage to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never got, die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Very important. Again, Paul is not denying the reality of ongoing struggle with sin. It's a daily battle for the believer. This is why Jesus says we are called to pick up our cross daily. We're called to repent daily because every day we are beset by ongoing sins and struggles and habits and you name it. So the second, I mean, so relating back to the first point, Paul says in your baptism, you are given a new identity. You are now a new creation. You were, your old self was crucified and you've been given a new uh, self declared to be 100% righteous. So it relates very well with what he says in verse 11 here. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's, there's a, a reckoning, um, uh, a way of thinking that Paul is uh, emphasizing to his Roma audience. It, it's true that Jesus is in fact reigning over all and he will never die again. He died the death to sin once for all and the life he lives, to, he lives to God. That's a fact. For us, we have to still, because we're in this already and not yet, we have to constantly remind ourselves of who God actually says we are or 
consider ourselves, reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you see the battle, the tension that Paul is presenting for us that he'll explain much further in Romans chapter 7. There's this battle in which we have to constantly consider ourselves dead to sin to remind ourselves of what we were given in our baptism. Uh, Luther would often say that every time we wash our face or wash our hands, we should be reminding ourselves of what we've been given in our baptism, that we are in fact a new creation declared to be completely righteous in the sight of God, uh, totally separate from our works on account of Christ alone. So Paul then continues, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. In other words, don't let sin be king sin to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I love the imagery of instruments here. Um, and maybe you could even translate the word instruments, weapons. Here's one of the reasons I love the imagery. What Paul calls us to do is certain is just to sort of present ourselves as one kind of weapon or instrument or the other, either a weapon that's used for unrighteousness or a weapon that's used for righteousness. But an instrument and a weapon has to be played or fired by somebody. And who is that somebody? Well, it's God. So Paul is using this sort of picture and says like, it's ultimately about you presenting yourself, offering yourself as a living sacrifice and simply allowing God to use you as a weapon in his hands, as a tool, as an instrument. So it's even not about so much what you do as much as who you submit to. And then he gives this promise, and it is a promise. He says, verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, I think the way that we often read that is we hear it this way. Sin isn't your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. And there's a sort of threat to it. There's a sort of, if, you're, if you are sinning, well, then clearly, then you have not received grace. But notice, please, that he uses the future tense here. This is a promise for you that you can hang on to in your battles with sin. The truth for you, Christian, is that sin one day will have no dominion over you. And even now, according to our standing through faith in Christ, it does not have dominion over you. It is not your master, even if you feel like it is sometimes, even if you continually struggle with the same old things that you wish you could get past, it is not your master. It's not, and it will not be. It's a promise since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, isn't that fascinating? Paul equates having sin as your master with being under the law. This is completely contrary to the way we naturally think. We think that following the law is indeed what will lead to more sinlessness. But as Paul points out throughout the whole book of Romans and in his other writings, in fact, the power that sin gets 
is from the law. Why? Because the law inflames our flesh. The law entices us to disobey and it causes us to transgress even further. So the contrast here is fascinating because Paul basically says, since he promises sin will have no dominion over you, he basically is alluding to the fact that one day we will not need law anymore at all. We won't need it. There will not be any threat anymore because we will not be under sin's dominion. We will be under grace forever and ever. It's a fascinating thing and it goes contrary to the way that we naturally think about the world. The law is not what's going to lead to life. Is that the law's fault? No. As a matter of fact, Paul will go on in Romans 7 to make the case like, no, the law is great. The law is good. It's holy and just. What's the problem then? Me. I'm the problem. I hear the law and instead of hearing good will and God's will for my life, I hear something that makes me want to rebel and that is the sinful man, the sinful nature that needs to be constantly put to death. So Paul goes on. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? I mean, since we don't, we're no longer subject to the law, we're no longer slaves to the law, we're free in Christ? Hey, is the same type of question. Should we go on sinning? Again, Paul says, by no means, or heaven forbid. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Again, do you see the, the contrast Paul is making here? Paul is saying, this is who God has declared you to be. You are no longer under sin's dominion. Sin is no longer your master. Jesus Christ is your master. Now, Paul realizes that using this kind of terminology is maybe it's a little rough. And so he says here, verse 19, I, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members, again, there's that word presenting, you're, pre you're just presenting yourself to me your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, to set apartness, to, to holiness, to, uh, to being set aside for God's special purposes. This whole argument here, it occurs to me when he begins saying, uh, when you were a slave to sin, it led to death. I think it's important to point out that, yes, it leads to our own death. The reality of sin is that it leads to our own demise. But it also leads to our neighbor's demise. Our sin is what brings death to the world, not just to us individually, but to others around us. It is the world's sin towards one another that leads to all sorts of terrible things. And so Paul wants us to be instruments, weapons in God's hands for the purpose instead of bringing life to our neighbors, of bringing life to our neighbors. And that means we present ourselves to him to be used for his purposes in that regard. He says this, verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, 
you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. This is, a, this is a fantastic question. You're tempted to go back into sin. And it's a funny thing when you're tempted to go back into sin or you're tempted, you know, every day, you, you know, fall short. Part of what we do oftentimes is uh, we're fooled by nostalgia. Nostalgia sort of lies to us and tells us things about our sinful past that make it look more glorious than it was. And Paul wants to give a stark reminder. He says, think about the fruit that came from it. Think about the fruits that come from whenever you give into your lower appetites, from whenever you give into those temptations. Think about how it feels afterwards. Does it, is it fruitful? No, it, it kills. It causes strife. It causes division. It causes pain for you and your neighbor. It causes relational breakdown. It causes disunity and disharmony. But now that you have been, declarative statement, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now again, Paul is just contrasting what we should do now. How should we, who do we present ourselves to? Now that we've been completely set free by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and we're saved 100% by him, what do we spend the rest of our lives seeking to do? Well, no, don't go chasing after the things that you were freed from that have only led to bondage and decay and death. No, instead, offer yourselves to God that he might work through us as his instruments for the good of our neighbor. This is the battle. This is the tension. I'm often fond of saying to people, Christianity doesn't teach that you will have a victorious life with sin, that you will never struggle with sin again. It just doesn't. Romans 7, as we'll go on to see, is abundantly clear about that. But what Christianity does teach is that the rest of your life will be a struggle with sin, that there will be a battle going on that the new nature and the old nature are going to fight it out. And sometimes the old nature is going to appear to have victory, but it doesn't last for long because each and every day as you remember your baptism and you come in repentance and ask for forgiveness, it is guaranteed, granted to you every single time because that baptismal identity does not go away no matter what fleeting pleasures you've given into, no matter what things you have fallen short in, that identity is rock solid and true and stays with you. It's guaranteed. And so Paul concludes with a very famous verse, usually just sort of quoted by itself, but remember the context here. Remember the context of what he's talking about. He says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the question we're left with as we enter into Romans 7, which I'll spend some time talking about next week. The question we're left with is, uh, are we living uh, in such a way as if we're trying to earn wages, which inevitably leads to death, the wages of sin is death, or are we living in light of the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord? 
because one will lead to further spiraling down to decay and death. If we continue to see our lives as sort of a wage that we have to earn in order to stand right with God, it will only lead to worse and worse. It will only lead to death. But if we primarily see our identity wrapped up in gift as being recipients of the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, then we just may be able to present our members to God each and every day as instruments for him to use for the good of our neighbor, the good of our families, and uh, the good of all those around us. May it be so. May God use us by the power of his gift of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit to, uh, to bring good news to the world. All right, gang, that is it for Romans 6 today. I hope you've been blessed by that, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next Tuesday for Romans 7. Have a great week.